0: Well, good morning everybody. Um, we are going to finish our summer series this morning. Uh, we've been talking about the Christian virtues that the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, he says that these are things that should be uh, ever-present in our lives. These are the things that Jesus grows in people who follow him. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I need people who look like that all around me, you need people who look like that all around you, and our broken and anxious world needs lots of people who look like that. So this morning we're going to talk about self-control. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed, uh, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 10:13. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as always, that you would be happy to use this word that we've just read and heard together to lead us to the word that is incarnate, our elder brother who bears our flesh right now, um, who's seated at your right hand praying for us. Show us his grace and mercy more clearly. And help us to get at least a better grasp on something that we probably don't think a ton about, don't pray a lot for, and that is self-control. Father, we ask that you would help us to know that it is true first, what we just heard in the Old Testament lesson, that someone without self-control is like a broken down city with no defense. And that you would lead us, as we just sang together, into having our lives and our loves controlled by the love of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> probably like a bunch of you, uh, I watched a lot of Olympic coverage uh, earlier in the month. Uh, and I have to admit that I was a little bit sad when the Olympics started. Um, I was sad, some of you probably remember, uh, that Chicago bid uh, for this summer's Olympic Games. That, that would have been an amazing experience in our city. But Rio looked beautiful and uh, some pretty remarkable stuff happened for our athletes. All right? We won the medal count, which is always nice, but uh, in particular I'm thinking of those things like Michael Phelps adding to what was already a legendary career, or our women's gymnastic team making things look completely easy, or Simone Manuel swimming to a gold medal that obviously meant a lot more than most gold medals. And I uh, one night I watched them swimming with Paul and Lene Vanderbile. And while we were watching swimming, or maybe before, they, they came up with a great idea, or their family came up with a great idea. Uh, they thought that there should be a lane just for normal people in every single race. You know, just anybody from the stands could come down and race with these elite athletes. I mean, I, I would love, love, love to see that. Not to make fun of anybody, um, but I think it would be a visceral way to get a sense for just how extraordinary um, the performances of the world's best athletes are. For instance, right? if I swam the 800-meter freestyle, I honestly believe it would take me several days to finish. Um, wholly unlike Katie Ledecky, right, who broke her own world record to swim it in 8 minutes, 4.79 seconds. I watched that race, probably some of you watched that race, and if you did, you know this is true. Katie Ledecky made everyone else in that race look like they were swimming in the normal person's lane. Her closest competitor was 12 seconds away from her. right? And in races that are measured by hundreds of seconds, a 12-second gap is like here to the moon. I mean, it was unbelievable, exciting to watch. And here's the beautiful and cruel reality of the Olympics, right? Does anyone in here remember who came in second? (laughs) Unless you are an ardent swimming fan, I'm guessing that you don't. And that is the reality that the Apostle Paul evokes for his friends in Corinth when he asked them that question at the beginning of the text that we just read together. He says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one of them gets the prize? And, of course, we know no one wakes up in the morning and just decides to swim as fast as Katie Ledecky. Like, I'm just going to do it today. We know that that takes years and years of training. It takes an incredible amount of discipline. Here's what it takes. It takes years of aligning every single part of your life to correctly get to that goal. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In church, that is what self-control is. It is getting things in proper order to reach the thing that you're aiming for. And in particular, the Christian virtue of self-control is rightly ordering our loves and rightly ordering our desires and rightly ordering our affections to get at that thing that we are supposed to be aiming for. We're going to talk about what that thing is in just a minute, but for now it is good for us to hear self-control comes from rightly ordered love. Self-control comes from rightly ordered desire. And here's something that I think is just absolutely true for every single one of us. This is just true about being a human being making your way through life. And that is that we cannot flourish, we cannot live the lives that we know that we were made to live unless our desires are in the right order. We cannot live the right way unless we have self-control. And if we can just be honest for a minute and admit, every single one of us in here this morning, doesn't matter who we are, we know exactly what Paul is talking about here. We know what he means. Because every one of us at some point or another comes to the end of the day, and even though we wouldn't quite say it like this, we get to the end of the day and we think, man, my desires, my loves, everything is messed up. And we know that that's what's happening when we ask ourselves questions like, what in the world did I do that for? Why did I say that to her? Why didn't I just help that person who asked, what am I doing? Right? We all get to the end of some of our days and we look back and we have stuff that we wonder about. When our head hits the pillow before we fall asleep, we wonder about stuff. And we have stuff in our lives that we're ashamed about and stuff that we regret and stuff that doesn't even make sense to us and stuff that we hope no one ever finds out about. That, church, is the definition of running aimlessly and beating the air (laughs) with our desires all out of whack and leading us nowhere good. So here's what is good. Here's the good news, and that is that Paul is talking to people like us. And it is an incredibly hopeful and helpful thing that he says. So when Paul talks about running, when he talks about boxing, he is tapping into something that his readers would have known a lot about. Athletics were huge in the Greek-speaking world. Uh, Corinth itself had been the site of the Isthmian Isthmian Games. It's like an Olympic-like contest that drew athletes from all over the place. They had the same cultural obsession with athletics that we do, maybe even to a greater extent. And like us, they knew the difference between casual athletes and elite athletes. That's the kind of runner Paul's talking about when he says that only one of them gets it. And you have to run to obtain that prize and exercise self-control in all things. Paul's talking about not just exercising self-control during the race... He's thinking about everything that these elite runners do in the months leading up to that race. And even if you're not an elite runner, if you've ever trained for a marathon or are training for a marathon or half marathon, 5K, whatever, you know that there are hundreds of choices that runners have to make. Some of those choices need to be made every single day. And those those days have to add up to months and months on end in order to win the prize. And I think that this is a particularly important thing for all of us to understand, but maybe in particular for those of us here this morning who are new to the faith or maybe just considering Christianity, and that is this, that that we tend to think of self-control in negative, restrictive terms. Right? Don't do this thing. Don't do that thing. And when we do that, I want to say that we are in danger of reducing our faith to a code of ethics or a list of rules. And I want to say that that is not Christianity. That's not the good news that Jesus came to tell us about. Here's what Jesus said. He said it more than once. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, if that's all that Jesus said, then we may be able to say yes. He's asking us to adhere to a set of rules. But that's not all Jesus said. He said, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Because whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. I mean, what Jesus is saying is that following him, yes, is leaving behind an old way of living and being. But it is just as much about entering into a completely new way of living and being. And that new way, the way that is following after Jesus, contains a whole host of beautiful, life-giving things to say yes to. And the gorgeous paradox that it's at the heart of Jesus' teaching, that's at the heart of the Christian faith, is that when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, we actually get our life back. We start living the way that we were made to live. When our desires are rightly ordered, when our loves are rightly ordered, we are finally free. And of course the punchline to Paul's metaphor of this runner is when he says that they do it to receive a perishable wreath. You've seen pictures of this in elementary school. That wreath, that garland around the victor's head, this this set of withered vegetables. It's nice in the moment, but of course it fades. Paul Just like Jesus says we are running for an imperishable prize. What is that imperishable thing? What is that prize? I could answer that in a sentence. In fact, I think I could answer it with a phrase, and I will in a minute. But I think first it would be helpful to see how Paul gets towards answering that question. So I want to start by just mentioning this little thing he says in verse 11 so that we can see where he is headed before we head down the path with him. He says, these things happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So here's what that means. Paul is about to tell his friends a story, and it is a story that has reached its climax, and we are living in the resolution of that story. So here's the story. Paul tells the church that their fathers and mothers in the faith were all under the cloud. He says that they all passed through the sea and they all were baptized into Moses. He tells them that our fathers and mothers in the faith all ate the same spiritual food that we eat. They all drank the same spiritual drink that we we drink because they drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. It's, it's strange. It's a little bit of a strange story, right? Paul has woven together a bunch of images and events from Scripture. And some of it, some of it would have been fairly obvious to his friends. They had a meal that they shared when they came together to worship. Their spiritual food and drink is what our spiritual food and drink is, this meal that Jesus gave us on the night that he was betrayed. But what might have been confusing or surprising to them, and maybe to us, is Paul's insistence that the ancient Israelites, who seemed as far away from Corinth as you could possibly imagine, who seem as far away from us as we can possibly imagine, that the ancient Israelites are in fact our fathers and mothers in the faith. They are our family. (laughs) That's what that other set of images is all about, about passing through the sea, about drinking from a rock. Paul has woven, as Pastor Jeff said already, he has woven the story of the exodus from slavery in Egypt into the story of the church. Passing through the waters of the Red Sea, it was like a baptism. And the manna that they ate while they were wandering around through the wilderness, it's like the meal that the Corinthians ate that we eat when we worship together around the table. The story of ancient Israel was in fact the Corinthian story. And it is our story. Paul saying there is just this one story. (laughs) And it is the true story of the world. It is the long drama. And it has gotten, just now, fuller and more beautiful because we are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. See, Paul is saying that the story of the exodus from Egypt is a perfectly suited story to talk about the ordering of our desires He tells the church the story, and he tells it to him with a warning attached. And if you know the story of the Exodus, you probably know where Paul is headed with this. I mean, they had just been delivered from slavery. It was absolutely incredible. They are on the cusp of entering into the land of promise. It was this incredible, spectacular deliverance. But they had not been free for very long before things started to go off the rails. As Paul puts it, God's people started desiring evil, and that ordered desire took the form of idolatry. In some cases, literal idolatry. Paul alludes to the making of the golden calf, all of the sexual immorality that was attached to pagan worship, and that was true in ancient Israel, and that was true in ancient Corinth. But in other cases, there was something more subtle happening, a different kind of idolatry. Paul talks about how some of the people started grumbling and pining for this illusion of safety that they imagined they would have if they could just go back into the past, if they could just go back to Egypt. Paul talks about how some of them put God to the test, wondering out loud if he was really as good as he said he was, if he could really keep the promises that he had made to them. Now we might not think of those things as idolatry, but they are actually classic versions of it. In church, this is what a disordered, out-of-control desire always does to people like us. These desires lead us to try and get what we need from things that could never, ever give them to us. You know, I want to feel intimacy, and I want to feel closeness. So I'll run to whoever and whatever can provide that feeling, regardless of the consequences. Or I want to feel comfort. I want to be free from anxiety. And so I'll run to those old harmful habits or abuse those substances that deliver comfort, that deliver forgetfulness. They might jeopardize my family, they might do violence to all of my friendships, they might harm my own body, but I'll deal with that later. right? My life feels out of control. This situation, whatever it is that I'm in, it feels out of control. And so I will use anger or I'll use shame to manipulate people around me into living out my script of the world instead of the world as it actually is. You know, we can call that stuff anything we want to call it. But the end result of -of out-of-whack desires is always the same. They do not make us free. They make us slaves to things that can never deliver what we really need. And that would leave us, like our fathers and mothers, out wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. And that is Paul's point. That's why he says to the church, let any one of you who are hearing this story take heed, lest you fall. Paul is telling us to learn from the story of our mothers and fathers in the faith, and in doing that, that, he is also reminding us of what the prize is. This is where I'll make good on my promise of reminding us what it is. What is the imperishable prize? Well, their story is our story. Their story is our story. The imperishable prize in the story of God and his world, it is new creation. New creation is the thing that we are aiming for. It is the thing that we are running towards. That new creation in which we as individuals, in which all of God's people, in which the entire created order is made new and restored and set at peace to finally be the way it was meant to be. That is the prize, new creation. And that is the story. It's the story that we enter into at our baptism, where the sign of water reminds us that we can be washed clean, that we can be made new by the blood of Jesus. We remember that story. We remember the long drama. Every time we participate together in the Lord's Supper, where the signs of bread and wine wine remind us that Jesus' cross and resurrection are the tr- true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. You know, Paul didn't pick these two things by accident. He didn't just pull them out of the air. Paul picks these two things because these are the two things that Jesus told the church to do until he comes back to make everything new. And Jesus told us to do those two things because with unmatched eloquence, with unparalleled clarity, they point to the forgiving and renewing grace of Jesus for people like us. And Jesus' grace, his grace, that is the thing around which the church is called to order her desire. The grace of Jesus offered in the death and resurrection and ascension. It is the center of our common life. It is the center of our worship because he is the object of our deepest and truest love. And let me tell you, here is what happens when people like you and me begin ordering our loves and our desires around the gospel, around the grace of Jesus. When we do that, more and more of the hundreds of thousands of choices that happen in our lives every day come into clearer focus. They do. And we can see our way clear to order all of our other loves and all of our other affections and all of our our other desires under this life of grace. And that, in turn, helps us to say no to a whole bunch of things that would leave us wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. And yes to a whole host of things that will allow us to be part of making the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. When we walk like this, here's what Paul says in Galatians 5, the spirit begins to work the fruit of self-control in us from the inside out, and we are finally free to be the people that we were made to be. And i got to tell you, this applies equally to choices that might seem mundane to us as much as it does to big choices, the ones that seem huge to us. This reality, this truth, informs questions like, should I eat this whole bag of potato chips right now? As much as it applies to, should I take this job that will make me a lot of money but draw me away from important things? You know, which desire should take priority in either of those moments. Which love is the love that drives that decision? Which one will rightly order everything else? It doesn't come automatically for people like us. We have got to think about it and work at it. And Church, part of growing up in our faith is asking those questions when we face decisions. And allowing this desire to run towards the imperishable prize of a heart and a world made new by Jesus to inform those decisions. That is the fruit of self-control. And Jesus gives it to us for our good and for the good of this broken world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, use whatever means you need to use to make us as individuals and to make us as a people those who are controlled by this incredible white-hot love that you have for us in Jesus. Father, make us, as we order our lives around the gospel, as we come together and order our lives around the gospel as we worship, As we do this during our weeks, help us, Father, to live that out in the decisions we make, even the mundane ones. Father, we need this, and this world needs this, so make us into those people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.